Well, good morning, friends. It is Friday morning, which means it's time for uh, another devotion throughout the week here. Uh, we're, we've been trying to do uh, devotions on a regular basis. Usually there's one every morning uh, of the week. And today we're going to be looking at a passage that uh, I'm sure is very familiar to many of you. It's probably one of those passages that is familiar to even most people, uh, whether they're Christians or not, because uh, its fame has gone far beyond just those who uh, value the scriptures or read the scriptures or believe in the scriptures. Its fame has been applied to just about, uh, well, I mean, every country on the planet. And uh, you can see that in the number of organizations that are named after the parable we're going to look at today, namely the parable of the Good Samaritan. So uh, let me begin by acknowledging something about my past that maybe you don't know. Um, when I was growing up as a kid, I got in an awful lot of fights. Uh, that is not to suggest that I was good at fighting. Uh, I was not. I lost most of them. And usually the reason I got into them is because, well, I had a big mouth. Some gifts never really go away. I still have a big mouth. I just use it to preach the gospel now instead of hurl insults at my perceived enemies, which I did a lot when I was a kid. And uh, anyhow, but, the, but my worst sort of fighting moment that I can remember was actually not a time where it was sort of a one-on-one -on -one thing. Uh, it was a time where me and my buddies went out to go see the movie A Few Good Men. Uh, back when that came out, I was 14 years old. Uh, we couldn't drive, and so we were just dropped off um, at the parking lot where the movie theater was, and we had a little time to spare. And so we figured that we would walk across the street to uh, another, um, uh, you know, little shopping mall area. And we did, and as soon as we walked across the street, me and my two friends were almost instantly surrounded by nine much larger men in a sort of half circle. Uh, it took us a minute to realize what was going on. And then uh, one of them said something to my friend, I didn't hear what he said, and they all rushed upon us and beat the heck out of us. And uh, sure enough, me and my friends had uh, gotten jumped and got beat up pretty, uh, pretty significantly. Um, and uh, I won't go into any more of the details there. Uh, but it was, it was a bad, bad thing, and it was pretty clear that we were, uh, we were in great danger. Uh, but one of the things I remember about that event uh, was seeing all the people around us. It was in a restaurant parking lot that just sort of watched us get beat, these three 14-year-old kids, and did uh, nothing. I can remember a guy standing about six feet away from me on a payphone. Remember those? They used to be a thing. Uh, and he was still talking on the phone. He's just staring at me. I mean, I remember being on the ground and having three guys kicking me. And this guy's on the phone, and he's just looking at me. And it's as if he's continuing his conversation. Maybe he's reporting what's happening to me to his buddy or whoever he's on the phone with. I can see onlookers in the restaurant looking out at me and my friends as well. And no one did anything. No one called anybody. Nothing happened. The cops were never... Uh, the cops never came. There was nothing like that uh, until my father eventually was called from a nearby payphone by me and came to pick us up. So, so the question that I was left with, even though I might not have had the language to articulate it at the time, was uh, basically, where were the Good Samaritans? Uh, where, where were the people there that 
uh, would be willing to step up and help me as I was being truly victimized and, and, uh, and beaten to a pulp. So, uh, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan is really all about that. It's about somebody coming out of, um, somebody being willing to go and extend help to someone in a time of crisis. So, so let's look at the parable. First of all, the background. Well, it all starts off with a lawyer, a teacher of the law, one skilled in, in interpreting the, the law of God, a Jewish theologian or scholar back then. Uh, and he stands up to test Jesus, as often is the case. Hey, Jesus, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, from the beginning, Luke tells us his true motives. He is not really interested in learning. He's there to test Jesus. He wants to trap Jesus. But he doesn't know who he's dealing with, of course, and this always tends to be the case. So Jesus responds in good rabbinical style with a question. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, you tell me the answer. Now, I suppose at this point, it would have been fair for the lawyer to simply say, well, I asked you first, I asked you first. But he doesn't say that. He takes the bait and answers perfectly, pitch perfect. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and, your, and love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer knows the Bible, he knows the scriptures, and he is spot on as he quotes the two greatest commands. That is, after all, what the law says. That's how it's summed up. So, since the man loved the law so much, wanted to know what to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus tells him, you want to do it? This is how it looks. But of course, those words, as easy as they are to quote on paper or to say out loud, well, they're not as easy to test yourself by in real life, right? Initially, this lawyer confidently came to Jesus to test him, but now he's the one being tested internally. Something inside of him, as he quotes these commands, still isn't sitting well. And one might think that it would be the first command that's giving him trouble. After all, I mean, who has loved God perfectly with all of their being their entire life? But in interestingly, it's not that particular side of the law that the lawyer is troubled by. But it's the second side of the law, the ones having to do with our neighbor. So Luke says, seeking to justify himself. So important to understand the motives. Seeking to justify himself. He asked, and just who is my neighbor? Can you clarify that for me? Now, there would be good reason for him to ask this question at that time. As we see from the rest of Jesus's ministry, this word neighbor really had been redefined by the religious leaders of Judaism to be, well, to be more compatible with whom they wanted their neighbor to be, right? So to fulfill this command of loving neighbor, some people were inherently excluded from many of the religious writings of the day. For starters, of course, all non-Jews were not considered the neighbor. Also, those who were perceived to be enemies, uh, tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, all were not really neighbors in the Judaism of the day. But perhaps this lawyer has, has heard of some of Jesus's teachings on this issue. Remember, it was in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said that you should not just love who you perceive to be your neighbor, which had basically become redefined to be like those who are your friends, but he said, no, love your enemies. Or maybe, maybe even more than that, he heard Jesus' teaching 
or, or the, maybe more than hearing his teaching, maybe he heard about what Jesus actually did. Like he went around having lunch and dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes and touching lepers and going to people like Samaritan women and talking to them and even telling them that they could be forgiven of their sins. I mean, you know, th this could be a little scandalous. And so, so the, the lawyer's looking for a loophole as good lawyers do. So now the story, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now this road would have been very familiar to the people that Jesus was speaking to. It was a common traveling road, the one from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, it was actually about 17 miles long and descended sharply from about 2,500 uh, feet above sea level to 770 feet below sea level. Uh, it was actually known by some as the bloody path. Uh, scholar David Wenham sets the scene. He says the description of the man being set upon, brutally beaten, and left half dead would have made uncomfortable sense. It's what everyone feared about that road in Jesus's day. So before going any further, it's important for us to simply stop and just picture the scene, for that is what Jesus wants us to do. There is a man traveling down a road who is stripped, so at least half naked, beaten so severely that he is left for dead. He is as helpless as a human being can be. He is truly a victim. There is no way he has of saving himself. That's what we know so far. Now, let's meet the villains of the story. You can imagine that as the man is sitting there, laying there, dying, bleeding out, that suddenly when he saw out of the squint of his eye a character passing by dressed in priestly garb, that there just might have been a flutter of hope that filled his heart, that just maybe, just maybe, he could make it out of this. Surely, if there was going to be anybody that, that came to the aid of this dying man, it would be his fellow Jewish leadership and, uh, and servants of the word. Perhaps he could take him back to the temple. Perhaps he could bring healing. But of course, that's not what happened, right? What does Luke say? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, very, very important detail in the story, Luke wants us to acknowledge and to know he saw him. He passed by on the other side of the road. Again, he saw him. But thankfully, all is not lost because by happenstance, likewise, a Levite came to the place and saw him too. Well, perhaps the man thought this time, that, I mean, hey, okay, the head pastor botched it, but maybe the assistant pastor still got a little integrity left. Maybe he'll come and get me. Maybe I can be saved after all still. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, that is not what happened. The Levite saw him and passed by on the other side of the road. Now, upon reading that portion of the story, it is all too common for us to make these men into villains and hypocrites. And to some extent, they are. 
but don't allow yourself to disassociate from them too quickly. Remember, this is a rough road they're on. This is the bloody path after all. Remember, they are doing important work and are very busy. Who knows what they were heading to? Maybe they're going to the home of a dying person's family or a dying family member, and they're trying to minister to them, and they've got a real important task to do. They've, there's a lot of reasons why they may not have stopped. Helmut Thielica, a German pastor, pictures the priest wrestling with whether to help the man or not, and he's just about to. And he says, quote, but at the last moment, there occurred to the priest a saving thought, which at one stroke released him from this painful and hazardous obligation and dispersed these self-reproaches of cowardice that were filling his mind. And the saving thought was this question. Who is my neighbor really? This man whom I don't know at all? This fellow who may well be a rascal or even a drunk who probably ran his head into a tree? My family comes first, after all. If it were only myself, I would sacrifice my life for him. But I must maintain my family, my vocation, and therefore my real neighbor. It surely would not be obedience, but sinful. If I, if I too were to allow these robbers to do me in, bad enough that one person should be assaulted, nobody would be served if this gang were to beat and maim not only one, but two persons. Besides, I have all the collection money from the temple in Jerusalem in my pocket. It would be foolhardy of me to allow this money, which belongs to God after all, to fall into the hands of robbers. Tielica goes on to say, he thought of a hundred other reasons why this man could not possibly be his neighbor. Reasons always present themselves when we want to duck something. Even the worst blockhead suddenly becomes as sharp-witted as a mathematics professor when it comes to finding reason for getting out of doing something. The road to hell is not paved merely with good intentions, but with good reasons. End quote. It is all too often the same with us. It is not. It is not that we are monsters. It is just that we are fallen human beings. And that means that our primary thought, our primary motive most of our day, if we're honest, is pleasing ourselves in those closest to us. But the results of our too often loveless inaction is that our neighbor still lays beaten, bloodied, naked, and left for dead on the side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Oh, great. A Samaritan, the Jewish man must have thought. <laughs> I mean, the Samaritan, the Jews of Judea, had become mortal enemies. Just a little over 100 years earlier, the Jews had made war on the Samaritan's home and destroyed their temple. In AD 6, not many years before this, just a little over 20 years before Jesus is telling this story, some Samaritans broke into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and spread bones all over it so as to desecrate it and make it unclean. I mean, it is not an understatement. Us preachers are not exaggerating when we say that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Hated. It is not far-fetched to imagine the beaten man being filled with even more fear as the Samaritan comes near. That is certainly what the crowd Jesus was speaking to probably would have expected to hear. So it is with great shock that they hear these next words come out of Jesus' mouth. 
And when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. The word for compassion there is the same word that's used to describe the father's feeling for his lost son in the story of the prodigal son. It is a deep-seated, overwhelming sense of identification with the injured injured person. No longer does this man see himself as a Samaritan and the injured man a Jew. The Samaritan now only sees another human being, just like him, laying there naked, beaten, and dying. And through this, he becomes a type of Christ to this man, as it were. He bends down to his enemy and takes care of him. We're told he went to him. Oh, how easy it would have been to do what the priest and Levite did before, not do any harm, but rather quietly pass by and let let what happened, well, let happen what would happen. But that's not the way it works when you feel compassion for someone. So too, our Lord did not stay in the comfortable confines of heaven waiting for us to pass away, but came to us where we were at and still does so today. The Samaritan then bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He uses his own medicine for his own journey to help the man, wine to disinfect, and oil as a salve for the wounds. So too, Jesus did not merely come to where we were at, but brought healing to our souls through his perfect life. We're told he set him on his own animal. The man carries this stranger, this enemy, on his own beast, choosing to walk alongside of him instead. And indeed, Christ carries us too, like a shepherd carries an injured lamb back to the flock. But he's not done. The Samaritan brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The generosity and the overwhelming care that this Samaritan shows this man is incredible. He gives the innkeeper enough money to cover weeks of expenses for the man to recover and then says on top of it, whatever more needs to be spent in order to ensure that he's brought back to health, I will repay you the next time I come back. Just make sure this man is alive. Is not this what Christ has done for us? Has he not paid the price in full for us to be completely healed and restored fit for the kingdom of God. So you see, the the Samaritan is not merely a picture to us this morning of a good neighbor. He's a picture uh, to us this morning of the good neighbor. Jesus is showing this lawyer he's speaking to that a true neighbor will do anything to help anyone at any time. And there's only one who's ever always done that. That's Jesus. So let's wrap this thing up. You come back to the question the man asked. Jesus looks at him. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the answer is obvious, right? I mean, it's, it's not even a question. The lawyer knew it. Jesus knew it. The crowd knew it. But begrudgingly, the lawyer, not even able to bring himself to say the Samaritan, says, eh. The one who showed him mercy, I guess. He knows. He knows who a real neighbor is now. So who's your real neighbor? It is anyone you can show compassion to, and it is anyone 
who can give compassion. In other words, a real neighbor is you. And we are called to extend compassion to them, whoever they may be. We've been hearing an awful lot about riots this week. We've been hearing an awful lot about protests, and we've been doing a lot of listening, at least I have. I've been thinking an awful lot about how to respond and what to think, and frankly, I'm, I'm still collecting my thoughts. I'm still learning. I hope that you are too. I hope that we have a posture of repentance and humility and an ability to hear what's being said. Um, I remember when I was 14 going through the LA riots in 1992, and, I, and during that time, um, you know, I, I was actually in L.A. I remember the city, watching the city burning all around me as we were driving on the, uh, I believe it was the 605 freeway on the way home. Uh, but I remember a story coming out from uh, around the riots that I think illustrated perfectly what this story of the Good Samaritan is all about. There was a pastor involved somehow in helping people that, well, that was actually caught on, on film. His name was, uh, was Pastor Benny Newton. Newton himself had been actually an ex-con at one point, and then God saved him, and now he was being used by God to run an inner-city ministry for, for various troubled men. On the day the riots started, he turned on the television to see uh, gang members beating a man named Reginald Denny. Some of you might remember him as he was dragged out of his truck and beaten and had a brick thrown at him. And, uh, it was right on the corner of Florence and Normandy, a very familiar place to people who are familiar with L.A. And so what did Newton do? Newton didn't just simply sit back and watch, but Newton rushed to the scene. And when he arrived, uh, Denny was gone. But most of the people that were doing the beating were still present, and they were, they were pummeling another innocent man, Fidel Lopez, a self-employed construction worker, he had been ripped from his truck as well and robbed of nearly 2,000 bucks, and someone busted his forehead open with a car stereo. Another uh, rioter tried to slice his ear off. The mob took off Lopez's pants and underwear after he blacked out from all his injuries. Then they spray-painted his body. Newton, who was considerably older, jumped right into the mess and threw his body over Lopez's to stop the beating. And you can find the footage, the video's out there, in which he's hovering over the man who has been beaten, and he says these words, kill him, and you have to kill me too. He yells it out, kill him, and you have to kill me too. And while he's saying that, he's waving a Bible in the air. Surprisingly, the gang dispersed, and then the pastor prayed over Lopez eventually driving him to the hospital himself for healing. Kill him and you have to kill me too. That's what it sounds like to be a good Samaritan. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. That is to you and I today, as people saved by the true and better Samaritan already in light of your being healed and restored and rescued and helped by me, now I want you to go be that to someone else. I want you to go look for ways that you can serve and love your neighbor too, because we all need help. We all need compassion. And in truth, we all 
we all need it more than we realize. So that's the Good Samaritan. May God richly bless you as you enter into this weekend and uh, make sure to join us for worship on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Thanks.